Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, December 29th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Obama administration expelled 35 Russian operatives in retaliation for hacking. They brought charges against individuals in the GRU. The GRU, not just the titular character in Despicable Me, but Russia's Foreign Military Intelligence Agency. And they shut down two compounds, one in Maryland, one in New York City. When I heard they were shutting down a compound in New York City, I said, just don't be the bathhouses on 10th Street. Don't worry, they weren't. But they also, the U.S. government did, brought charges against organizations, cover organizations they said were involved in the hacking. They used to have these fun, graspable names like Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, but now the organizations cited are Zor Securities, and an organization whose very name sought to draw away from their nefarious activities. That organization was the Autonomous Non-Commercial Organization Professional Association of Designers of Data Processing Systems. Now, if you know anything about the Autonomous Non-Commercial Organization Professional Association of Designers of Data Processing Systems, or ANOPA DADOPS, which of course is a merger of the wholly independent Autonomous Non-Commercial Organization of Professional Association of Designers of Data Processing Systems League and the Autonomous Non-Commercial Organization Professional Association of Designers of Data Processing Systems Association. So those two organizations, eh, leagues, associations got together and they became, of course, the ANOPA DADOPS. ANOPA DADOPS. It is a name synonymous worldwide with intrigue, stealth, subterfuge, and daring. In fact, they were the international self-sustaining independent association of stealthy, subterfugenist, daring computer-assisted information technology systems, non-commercial division, gold star winner last year. Now, a lot of employees of the Autonomous Non-Commercial Organization Professional Association of Designers of Data Processing Systems assumed that they were just working for a porn site. Must have been a porn site. But it was a very specific kind of porn. It was bureaucratic nomenclature porn. Well, I see you haven't properly filled out the P138 extension of the R41 acquisition form. Perhaps we can work out an arrangement. But in fact, the Autonomous Non-Commercial Organization Professional Association of Designers of Data Processing Systems is not a porn site. It's something else entirely. See, America... We're like the graphics of Fox News. We're a swooping eagle and a cowboy hat and a hee We got SEAL Team 6 and Rangers lead the way and the Snake Eaters. The Russians, they don't go in for that hoopla. 
they'll hunker down in Siberia for, I don't know, a decade, and they'll just bide their time. They'll wait for John Podesta to trip up with a password. The Americans are in such a hurry. They can't properly write ill before legitimate to warn their bosses that an email phishing expedition might be a ruse. But the Ruskies... They're quite happy to wait us out to just add nondescript word after nondescript word to their already burgeoning hacker cover organizations. If you have any doubts that Russia is playing the long game, just take note of how they're playing the name game. On the show today, in the spiel, on this sixth day of Hanukkah, I spiel about issues important to the Jews. One is Debbie Reynolds. She used to be married to a Jew. Her daughter married a Jew, was half half Jewish herself. And then there's Israel, important to the Jews. Well, I don't really have to explain that one. But first, Laurie Kilmartin's new comedy special, 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad, is just that, but more. By which I don't mean 47 jokes. It really is 45 jokes. But it's about using comedy to combat grief and possibly to gain Twitter followers. It's all here right now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. When Lori Kilmartin's father got cancer and then went into hospice, she responded really in the only way that she could. She turned it into comedy and she turned it into comedic tweets, which is odd since Lori Kilmartin is one of the most renowned oncologists in the United States. <laughs> no, she's not. She's a comedian. So it kind of makes sense. But at the same time, we still have these strictures around dying. So perhaps some people were shocked. But in fact, Lori found that more people rallied to her side. And now she's turned it into a special on CISO. Is that CISO? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The CISO Network. Hello, Lori. Hi, Mike. We should also say you're a uh, writer for Conan O'Brien. Uh-huh. Before your dad got sick, would you describe your humor as mordant, dark humor? Were you drawn to that kind of humor? Yes, especially since I had a child. Mm -hmm. uh, I got really dark after I became a mother. And I was dark beforehand, but I was dark about, like, you know, kind of light stuff. And once you, I think once you are responsible for a life, you really <laughs> see the power you have. Yeah. And you can get really dark. So, yeah, yeah, that was always my thing. That's always what I like to do. Like, I like to try to get away with that kind of stuff. Yes, you see the power you have, but also it's good for comedy. I mean, yeah. part of comedy is that there's this tension. Oh, you can't joke about that. Oh, you do. Maybe some of the laughs are, I can't believe she said that. But then there's the other laugh of, relief oh i kind of like thought stuff like that too yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> someone else said it yeah <laughs> so my dad had a stage four cancer and um that's when, when we discovered it he had stage four and that is hard to survive the only person i can think of that survived stage four cancer was lance armstrong he had testicular stage four cancer and he completely he completely survived it and lance armstrong is an asshole <laughs> I think it must help to be an asshole to survive stage four cancer, right? I think his cancer was like, this guy's a dick. 
he's lying to everybody. I don't want to be in his balls. Okay, so when your dad went into hospice and he was there for 10 days. 10 days, yeah. Okay, you started tweeting immediately? Uh, pretty much. I, I was joking about it. I was joking about his cancer for a while because I really didn't think he was going to die from it. Yeah. Um, and then when he went into hospice, uh, that was pretty much the only way I could communicate was to tweet jokes to let my let my coworkers know I couldn't come in because this was happening because it was really hard to actually say the words, you know, he's dying. I Even then, I, when he was in the hospital, I was like, he's going to rally, right? <laughs> there's, I mean, people, people do go into hospice and then they go out. You know, there's like that one story you cling to that you read about so uh yeah that was just how i responded naturally you know my mom stepped on my dad's oxygen (laughs) tank (laughs) and i immediately tweeted that you know that was like a symbol of their marriage or metaphor for it because he couldn't breathe for a while um so yeah i mean it was it was just kind of real-time observations and i think some of them were good jokes but some of them were just like this is happening you know there must have also been the weird thing since you're a professional and you know what's funny or not but you still probably did the thing where you thought of a joke and then you said, that's just not funny enough. Or you edited a joke and like you're trying to be oh, real, yeah. but you still Oh, I'm always it. editing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I wanted to make sure it was as funny as I could make it. Yeah. So I, I would sit on it. I, I wouldn't tweet immediately. I would yeah. put it in drafts and work on it while my dad was unconscious <laughs> and, and then tweet it then. Yeah. And during this time, during the 10 days, what did your Twitter following uh, increase exponentially. Yeah, it was weird. Uh, you know, Pat Oswald um, tweeted that I was doing this, yeah. and I w- at that time I wasn't thinking I was doing a thing. I was just sort of to my, you know, my few followers, like, hey, this is what's happening. And then people who had, who were losing their parents or who had lost them started coming over to my Twitter following. What year did Twitter. you do? What year did you do that? Uh, 2014. 2014. So a year before Scott Simon had been tweeting his mom's death. I know. And he, I know. He has now over a million Twitter followers. Yeah. And it's the way to go, guys. If <laughs> this whole this whole interview is about social media and how to two it. two pieces of advice. You want to increase those followers? <laughs> dead parent or side boob? Yeah. That's, that's the way to do it. So if my mom goes, we can get a little. Bit of both. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Depends on cause of death, but yeah. <laughs> so Megan O'Rourke wrote a book called The Long Goodbye. And in 2013, she was writing about this phenomenon of Scott Simon tweeting about his mother's death. And she noted that, here, I'll read the quote. In the 20th century, we had forgotten how to mourn. Having lost the old intimacy with death, living longer, dying in hospitals, we turned it into something shameful and forbidden. And so death and its aftermath became something to heal and get over. Americans adopted a kind of muscle-through-it approach exemplified in the TV series 24 when the female president staunchly told her aide, grief is a luxury I can't afford right now. (laughs) So that was the 20th century. Now, for all the horrors of Twitter and Facebook and social media, maybe it is true that it's helping us mourn, certainly a little more publicly, but that's a function of mourning. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes someone will say something on on Twitter that your family can't say and you can't say to them, you know? Yes, it's easier to share um, both actual comforting words and those words that you find when you Google things to say to someone when they're dying. (laughs) And they're awful. They're just awful. But you had the best one. I'm sorry for your loss. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the only thing that works. That's 100 percent. It it covers somebody if if they weren't close to the parent, you know, like you're not commenting on it. You're just saying whatever your loss is. I'm sorry for it. (laughs) If it's huge, I'm bummed. If it's not big, if, if it wasn't a big loss, 
I just want to cover my ass. You know? Right. I'm sorry for your loss, however you define it. Yes. Whatever its scope. Yeah. It's your loss. Your loss could be small. That is a good one. And it, it sounds trite, but it, it I think it's trite and it works. Yeah. And don't feel, don't feel like you got to be original. Like you can just be unoriginal at that time. There's a reason cliches are cliches. Yeah. And it's not that they, you know, strike us as the stupidest thing anyone ever said. Yeah. Right. But then some other bad things that people could say without, obviously there are the really stupid things, like someone asked your dad to say hi for tie to their dog. Yeah, I didn't mind that. I mean, he was a dog guy. So okay. the dog park people, they came out oh, the in droves to visit my yeah, dad. Like yeah. I had family members that didn't show up, but the dog park people were there. Yeah. You know, they had notes. They say hi to, you know, our dog who had died. And I mean, they all believed that they were going right to their dogs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that didn't bother me at all. Somebody brought a painting of their dog over. So my dad could look at it, and then they left with it. Like I was, to recognize it when you see him in the afterlife. Just to bring enjoyment. Oh, okay. That's the way dog people are. <laughs> now you're gonna. Now he's a boxer, but you're gonna want to note the bob tail when you see him over the rainbow bridge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So did they know your dad as your dad or just Rufus's owner? They knew him as, yes, Pepsi's owner. Pepsi. Exactly, yeah, Pep, the, the guy who owns Pepsi at the dog park. <laughs> what did your dad do for a living? He was an engineer. He was a civil engineer. Yeah. Another remarkable thing about this special, it's really the first one I ever saw that was just centered on the death of a father, but pretty much the first one I ever saw by a comedian saying what a great guy their father was. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. I don't think has ever happened before in comedy history. That's more the female comics. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think the male comics have daddy issues and the female comics have more mother issues yeah they do complain yeah. about their moms right yeah. well i do think it's self-selecting like we think obviously as you know all comedians are at least slightly insane yes sometimes very insane yeah sometimes tragically insane <laughs> but i think when they have good supportive nurturing parents it just doesn't become fodder and so they don't talk about it so you think every every comedian has parent issues but they don't some are really encouraged to be comedians um I, I think a lot of really good comedians do have parent issues. They may not mention it on stage. They just go a different way completely. But right. whatever drives you to an open mic for four years in a row until you get your first paid gig, et cetera, th there's some family problems. <laughs> there's no functional family brings up a child who wants to do that. Pay attention to me. I also, <laughs> one phenomenon I hear a lot is the one parent who is either funny or maybe just totally unfunny but often one f parent is unintentionally hilarious. Yeah, yeah. My that, dad was unintentionally unint hilarious. How was he unintentionally hilarious? He just pronounced things wrong. He's from Kansas. I mean, just I being a bumbling. Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's enough. He wore shorts 365 days a year, except when he went to mass and then he wore uh, khaki pants. But that, yeah. And and then you got into the politics a little bit. And you just mentioned he was a tea partier. Yeah, he was a, in the tea party. And So I'm this was before. Not, yeah, he died yeah. before when Trump was just a joke before he was an elected joke. Yeah, he died before Trump. What would he have thought of Trump? I don't know because my dad loved Glenn Beck and yeah. Glenn Beck turned. I'm, yeah. I would love to ask my dad what he would think because Trump is just such a gross – like my dad was not into that kind of a grossness of a, of a person, you know? Right. He was a – He was a decent civil. He was a civil engineer. Yes. yes. <laughs> and he, he really – he was that kind of conservative that, I don't know, was very attracted to those ideas. But the, then the Tea Party went – I don't know. I really don't know because he likes Sarah Palin too. Was he a fact over feelings guy? I think after 9-11, he wasn't. 
Okay. Like a lot of older people. I think after 9-11, he was feelings over facts. Oh, but he wasn't a 9-11 denialist. No, he wasn't a denialist. He yeah. was like, oh, like this, he's an they're coming to our shores. He yeah. was that kind of a guy. But he knew he knew the whole stuff about the degrees that it takes to make steel melt was bullshit. Oh, like he's oh, an that's, engineer. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, after, after I mean, feelings like, you know, the fear of Islam. My right. dad was caught up in that. And he worked in a lot of Muslim countries when he was an engineer. So I was like, you know better, <laughs> you know, so. I, I would be fascinated to know if he would support Trump or not. When you had conversations with him, do you think you ever convinced him of anything? No, not Never. at all. No, <laughs> I only convinced him that he sent me to the wrong liberal Catholic high school. <laughs> Did he ever convince you of anything? <laughs> no, no, no. We, we, we tried to mostly talk about dogs. And that's where we found, you know, a commonplace. But what about this whole thing that I often hear uh, people who are liberals? I mean, everyone's in their bubble. So you hear from conservatives, too. But I traffic mostly in liberals. We're here at Slate. Sure. Um, I, I don't even know anyone who voted for Trump. Isn't it good to even have a family member who you disagree with? I'm not saying you voted yeah. for Trump, but has totally different opinions of your own, and you know they're not monsters, and you also know where they're coming from. Yes. You can understand it better. I agree. I mean, I, there's a lot of Trumpers in my family, and my mom voted for Trump. What do you think about the special? She hasn't seen it. <laughs> what do you think about the tweets? She's not on Twitter. She's mm-hmm. 79, but she thought it was okay, and... When we read a lot of like the good luck messages that my dad got as a result of them, you know, on Facebook and stuff, she, you know, we all loved that. My dad really loved it. My dad was super Catholic and he loved to hear the people were praying for him. You know, we think it's a breach of decorum, but it's not. It's not just like our uh, morals have degraded. Yeah. They've changed around technology and circumstance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that what reading going back as I did and reading some of your tweets and seeing the special shows is that is that it's not a breach of decorum. It's not the selfie in the funeral home. Yeah. You know, it's a legitimate way of dealing with it and letting other people deal with it and acknowledging it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I've been a comic for like 29 years, so hopefully I brought some craft to it. <laughs> now, why did you want to do the framing device of people kind of talking about like uh, Andy Kindler and, and, and uh, Conan O'Brien, your boss? Why do you want to do the framing device of them kind of explaining? I mean, before... Before we get to the stand-up, I think there's a snippet of stand-up, yeah. but there's like 15 minutes of, you know, talking head interviews, which really explain what was going on. When Lori's dad was sick, Lori was on Twitter as if she was writing a memoir about it. It's almost like you're seeing in real time a documentary. She is being brutally honest about what's happening to her father, but also there's a sweetness there. She's clearly being moved by this event. But she's staring at it wide-eyed. And I thought it was really beautiful. I guess, you know what, that wasn't my idea. That was the the guys that did it, the Angry Buddha, the producers of it, said, hey, let's put a little context around it. Because I was like, no, let's just do straight stand-up. And they thought that it would sort of help people dip their toes into it. And, I think and you, it did. you get into the pool a little slowly and then you get to the deep end. I think it differentiates it as a stand-up special and also, I mean, this might be crass, but gives it stakes, mm-hmm. right? From yeah. a dr- drama point of view. Sure, sure, sure. Beyond this being a somewhat unique organizing principle, have you, when you do comedy, um, is it usually a little scattershot observation, observation, or have you ever had a show or a show or a, even a set that was kind of loosely based around one big theme that was going on in your life? No, like this? and I was always against like one person shows. I was like, oh, you were just too lazy to write a bunch of jokes. <laughs> you know, well, know what it is? You get reviewed that way. You get booked into I a know. theater. It's like a thing. I know. Like a- I mean, I, I, what I really wanted was 
to just do stand like this is I think stand up can handle this like it can handle you know losing your virginity like you can handle anything with stand up and you can write jokes about anything and I really wanted it to be a ton of jokes as many as I could think of you know as you were doing this did you have jokes that were like you hear about a band they were working on an album and they'll have a good song it's like it's just not right for this album did you have jokes like that oh yeah I I mean I purposely put dick jokes in you know and I tried to (laughs) relate them (laughs) (laughs) I tried to relate them to the topics which I kind of did and um, because I'm a nightclub comic you know that's how I think of myself and I'm not you got to keep people entertained and they lose their they lose interest after after six minutes if you haven't talked about genitals so I tried to keep that uh, you know that that brand going throughout the cancer special well if you want dick jokes if you want dying dad jokes if you want yes indeed not kidding dying dad's dick jokes (laughs) it's It's all there in Laurie Kilmartin's special on CISO 45 jokes about my dead dad As funny as it sounds. (laughs) Thank you, Laurie. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, it's probably not morning. But a word on the passing of Debbie Reynolds. Actually, four words. Singing in the rain. She was the female lead In the greatest film musical of all time, that's according to the AFI, the American Film Institute. AFI also put it on the list of just greatest movies of any type of all kind at number five. Debbie Reynolds, for this, was not nominated for an Oscar. Donald O'Connor, star of Singing in the Rain, was not nominated for an Oscar. Gene Kelly was not nominated for an Oscar. Singing in the Rain was not nominated for an Oscar. That year, The Greatest Show on Earth, widely regarded as the worst film ever to win the Best Picture Oscar, won. Debbie Reynolds' daughter was Carrie Fisher, and Carrie Fisher was an icon because she was funny and swift and bold, but because she played a signature role. Now, Princess Leia was an icon, but I don't know if you would call that great acting. Debbie Reynolds, on the other hand, and all her castmates in Singing in the Rain were engaged in stellar performances. You know what they were? They were movie stars. This is the tap dance scene from Singing in the Rain's Moses Supposes number. No one can do what Donald O'Connor is doing right here. Well, maybe one man can. His name is Gene Kelly, and he's doing it right next to Donald O'Connor. In a solid minute, they start off on the desk. They go to the floor. They reconvene in dual choreography. There is one cut. We're in an era of TV musicals, and they're such a slog. They combine live theater and filmed musical theater and absolutely have the worst aspects of both. Singing in the Rain had the best. La La Land will get nominated for an Academy Award. It might win because Ryan Gosling can do a tenth of what Gene Kelly did and a tenth of what Donald O'Connor did. The same with Emma Stone and Debbie Reynolds. Nothing against Emma Stone. To do a tenth of what Debbie Reynolds did is amazing, especially in this day and age. Oh, she could do an almost passable impression of Debbie Reynolds. Let's give her an Oscar nomination. She deserves it. Of course she does. Singing in the Rain apparently, however, did not. The Oscars may be so white and the Academy might not look like America these days, but man, they have been getting it wrong for years and years and years. And it might not seem like such a big deal the 64 years later, and I suppose it's not, but it's tangible and it leaves me a little miffed. Which brings me to Israel. Mike, solve Israel for us. I cannot. I tried once. I came in the form of a burning bush and they all called it fake news. Got a pants on fire rating from Polifact. And I was like, of course the pants are on fire. I'm a burning bush. Everything's on fire. 
So I can solve Israel for you. I can give you a little small bit of insight, a Gaza strip of insight, four to five miles across, but very important. I like how we're asked to evaluate Kerry's speech and Netanyahu's counter and the UN's resolution and Samantha Power's words in terms of, well, what does this do to the two-state solution? How will this affect the two-state solution? This is like asking how this weekend's Steelers game will affect the Browns' Super Bowl victory. If they lose, will it set back the Browns' Super Bowl victory? Does all the infighting in the Cleveland locker room doom the Browns' Super Bowl victory chances? There is no Brown Super Bowl victory. Two-state solution assumes facts not in evidence, as the lawyers say. There might be a Browns Super Bowl someday in a future that is less than foreseeable, but somewhat on this side of possible. But don't ask me to weigh in on a solution that's not even a plan or really a hope. The two-state wisp of an idea. So the question is, does the latest resolution set back Israel-Palestinian peace, by which I mean the wisp of a hope of a scintilla of an ambition of peace? Let's put it this way. Picture a dial spanning 180 degrees, all right, left to right. On the right side, that's peace, all right? Maybe it's not Canada-US border peace, but let's just call it like Northern Ireland peace, general peace. On the left side is ongoing tension, just tension, 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 war tension. Before this UN resolution, and before the blowback over it, where would that dial be? That dial would be basically touching the extreme left side, almost entirely in conflict. You could, if you squint, make out a little space between where we are now and out-and-out open warring. This week's events, all they do, they make you have to squint a little harder. That is all. Why? Well, here was uh, John Kerry's pull quote from his hour-plus speech. If the choice is one state, Israel can either be Jewish or democratic, it cannot be both. And it won't ever really be at peace. He's not wrong. But let's think about democracy. Democracy is not only the goal of Israel, it's the limitation. It's what's holding them back. Reeling in the settlers is not a popular position in Israel. Israel does not want to make concessions in advance of a peace that they don't think will ever happen with an enemy they don't trust to follow the rules. So democracy, I mean, that's what Israel represents. That's the ideal they're fighting for. But it's also why peace is so elusive. Peace is just democratically extremely unpopular in Israel, according to the terms of outsiders like John Kerry or Barack Obama. Because it's easy for outsiders to say, okay, here are the concessions you can make. But what if the outsiders are wrong? Oops. And you can still get a powerful position in the U.S. government after oops, we've learned that. Oops doesn't seem so dire. To the Israelis, the stakes are dire. The settlements for everything they are might one day be a good bargaining chip. Though there comes a time, and maybe that time is now with 100,000 settlers, where they're not a bargaining chip, they're intractable. And of course, the Israelis will howl, how dare you call these legitimate, rightful lands a bargaining chip, which is exactly, by the way, the right tack to take if you're selling a bargaining chip. You never, ever want to give this up. You pretend it's not a bargaining chip until you bargain it away. But in the end, I don't think what happened in the UN will really mean much towards the future of peace. In Israel, they have resigned to periodic flare-ups and suppression of Palestinian aggression, and they don't care if the international community doesn't like it, because America likes it, or likes it enough to, no matter what they do in the UN, still sell them the biggest weapons package Israel has ever been sold. And the incoming administration's Israel policy is more to the right than the policy of many actual Israelis. When Moses led his people out of Egypt, 
and wandered the desert for 40 years. It said he died within sight of the promised land. He thought that Canaan would be a haven for his people, perhaps Moses supposed erroneously. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube and Mary Wilson are the autonomous, non-commercial, professional production employees specializing in the facilitation, distribution, and preparation of just deal materials. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of autonomous podcast deal information, dissemination therein of Slate and all subsidiaries. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. That is Byzantine enough. The gist, we are not your average indentured for profit non-hierarchical amateurish consortium of news processing systems a wholly owned subsidiary of the carlisle group Peru, 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 and thanks for listening